Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good morning, good morning. <laughs> I uh, dug the, that mic over my mic situation. Uh, last night, my family and I went to um, a little like kids theater production, and uh, there were a number of times where someone's out on the stage like blah blah blah, do ba do ba ba. And they left the mic on for some other kids. So some kids like, <laughs> or saying some weird thing. It was like, anyways, uh, it reminded me of last night. At first I was like, wait, am I back in the theater right now? What's happening? Is that you, Lord? Um, good to see you guys this morning. You know, we've been going through this, uh, this um, series talking about idols and the way in which it's been framed. I really love uh, the way in which uh, idols have been framed. I think, you know, I grew up going to church, um, you know, talking about the Bible. And, and for me, um, idols felt like such an odd thing, you know, in, in my culture. I felt like, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not making idols. I'm not whittling things out of wood and praying to them or whatever. I'm not making golden calves or something. So I, idols felt kind of, eh, I don't know if that's really a me thing necessarily. And then, you know, we kind of said, yeah, but TV can be an idol or whatever. And I was like, okay, I guess I could see idols or whatever. But I, I love the way in which we've been framing idols in this conversation. The idea being that idols are something God's given us um, but we end up worshiping, worshiping them. So these are like gifts that God has given us, but instead of worshiping the gift giver, we worship the gift. Um, and and I, I see us doing this same thing here in, in the conversation we're having this morning, and the idea being um, aspects of relationships uh, that we have, um, these relationships that we kind of navigate in, in our own lives and how they can turn into the thing we worship, um, the thing we trust instead of, say, uh, the gift giver, God, instead of trusting him. So this morning, we'll kind of talk uh, about relationships and, and our, the way we navigate relationships. And in particular, in particular, you know, na- uh, relationships are pretty uh, complex stuff, but in particular, expectations that people bring to us in relationships and how do we navigate um, those expectations. You know, I'll, I'll use this little phrase. We'll put this up here, but um, I'll use this little phrase. And it's kind of a wonky phrase, but hopefully this helps. It says, Jesus deftly navigated other people's expectations, honoring his human need for refreshment and staying true to his mission to serve. One of the things that Jesus uh, says a time or two is, I'm here to serve and not be served. So that was his focus. But in the midst of serving, he also recognized that he had human needs, in particular to find refreshment, right? And he also recognized that even though he had the mission to serve, other people had expectations for him in that service, what they want, how they wanted him to serve, what they wanted his service to look like, etc., etc. And so again, Jesus definitely navigated other people's expectations, honoring his human need for refreshment and staying true to his mission to serve. So we'll jump into all this, but before we do, let's go ahead and pray. And God, we just thank you so much um, that you are the gift giver. You're not just uh, the one up in um, some distance, distant place called heaven that demands a lot of us and looks down on us and says, you're not doing it right, but you are the gift giver, God. And I just acknowledge in my own life that, man, I really, really am tempted and oftentimes give in to trusting the gifts saying that's what I need is the gift, God, instead of you. And I just ask this morning that you'd be convicting me and convicting us, that you'd be strengthening us to realize that you love us so much and you are so trustworthy. 
So we come to you this morning, God. We say we, we, we want to listen. There are probably plenty of things competing for our mind and our heart this morning. And we just are, are going to try hard just to set those down this morning, God, and give you our attention. And we ask that you would speak to us. What is it you want to say? We love you. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you know, I, I think maybe it might help to um, highlight a few different relationship categories that Jesus was navigating in, in his life. Um, you know, Jesus had a, a fantastic ministry, very interesting ministry, and at the same time, he was constantly kind of going between relationships, um, these different categories of relationships. So I think it might help to first underscore these different types of relationships that Jesus was going through, and then second, maybe some of the expectations um, that they're having, and then we'll kind of jump into a few specific scenarios that I think help highlight or help us understand a little bit how Jesus navigated it. And it's really fascinating stuff to me to watch how Jesus kind of danced through all these relationships. Um, but first, you know, the, I, to me, there are four different kind of categories. Maybe this isn't like the end-all, be-all list here, but for our conversation, uh, it, one in particular was religious leaders. So Jesus was constantly engaging religious leaders, and they had their expectations. In particular, they had their expectations of what the religion should be how it should be lived out, and they had expectations of their place within the religion. They were kind of the gatekeepers. But unfortunately, Jesus didn't play the game the same way they did, right? So they had this expectation about how the whole system was set up and how it should run, and Jesus didn't play it that way. And their expectations that were not met by Jesus provoked something inside them. And so what they would do, there are a couple different, handful of different things they would do, but just for, um, just for conversation's sake, a few different things they would do. They would publicly say, Jesus, this guy has a demon. He's not on the same team as us, everybody. He's on a different team. He's on Satan's team. Okay, keep your eyes open because he's not on this team. He's on a different team. So they'd mislabel him. They would also plan, intentionally plan to kill him. And Jesus knew this. It wasn't like a secret thing. Jesus knew that that was part of the dynamic, so much so that we even read in um, John 7 that Jesus kind of rearranged his uh, plans a little bit because he knew things were getting a little too hot, that these Pharisees or the, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They had expectations about the way religion was supposed to be, the, their place in religion. Jesus wasn't living into their expectations the way he wanted to, they wanted him to, and so they started pushing against him. You know, and not all religious leaders were bad. We even see um, there's a, um, uh, this religious leader named uh, Nicodemus. He was one of the Pharisees. And we see a fascinating dynamic with Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, in John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus meet at night. And I'm fascinated because in some sense, the way I read it, part of the reason why they're meeting at night is because Nicodemus is probably pretty scared of what his buddies would think if they saw him meeting with Jesus. And we see this a couple other times in John, this interaction um, with Nicodemus and, and his religious buddies. But Jesus knew, in some sense, Nicodemus had his own expectations. And Jesus was willing to flex a little bit and meet this curious religious leader as opposed to maybe this one, these other group of religious leaders who were not curious. They needed him to be something. So within the religious dynamic, the religious leaders, Jesus was willing to flex a little bit. The second group, family. So we talk a little bit about religious leaders' family. Family watched Jesus be Jesus from when Jesus was a little Jesus all the way up to being a big Jesus, okay? And within that whole Jesus journey, um, 
<laughs> Anyways, within that whole Jesus journey, um, I'm making myself laugh, but uh, uh, they, they saw, wait a second, wait a second, we, we know you, right? We've seen the, the good, the bad, the ugly. I imagine Jesus was a little grumpy when he woke up, or there were all these different things that Jesus did as a human. They knew Jesus, and they had this interesting relationship with him, right? And now all of a sudden they're seeing Jesus. He's, he's, a, bit, I don't, he's a bit of a rock star, and not, not, not in like a pejorative sense or whatever, but you're talking thousands of people are going to Jesus for healing and th- for his teaching, etc., etc., right? In fact, there's even a point where in uh, Mark chapter 3, it, it, ministry is so busy, he doesn't even have time to eat. He can't get through the crowd to get a meal, okay? Ministry is just going crazy. And what his family says, again, in, in that Mark 3 passage is, he's out of his mind. These are the people who love him, who know him. They look at what Jesus is doing and they say, that can't be healthy, he must be going crazy. These are the people who knew him well. And in their mind, their expectations were, this is what life should be. You're not doing it that way. Therefore, you must be going crazy. We see even um, in uh, John uh, chapter 7, his brothers, they thought they knew what Jesus should be, who he should be. And so we see them kind of needling him a little bit and saying, hey, look, Jesus, you should probably go up to Jerusalem. There's this big, uh, this big feast that they're going to have, this big um, uh, celebration, Jewish celebration. You should probably go up to Jerusalem because basically we know why you're here. You're here for the fame and the glory, right? So just go on up there. That's where a lot of people are going to be. You should kind of step into that. We see that even in his family, they had expectations about what health was, what ministry should be, what a human being should be, and they're kind of mischaracterizing him, assuming they think where his they they think they know where his heart is, where his intentions are, etc. So religious leaders, family, then we see the the public, the crowds. They, this is an interesting, really interesting dynamic because they would just really uh, vacillate, um, but the crowds. There was a time after uh, Jesus fed the 5,000 um, that the crowd sought, it says uh, in, um, in John 6, the crowd sought to force him to be king. He had to disperse the crowd because they were getting so riled up. They love all this miracle stuff and feeding us. Woo, this guy's amazing. Let's force him to be king. If we just kind of capture him and push him up onto the throne, then he will be our king. He'll kind of maybe beat the Romans or do whatever it is he can do, and we'll have this king that will institute the society that we want to have. And so they're willing to try and push into him and force him to be something, the crowds. But not long after that, well, I'll I'll talk about that in a minute, but we also see like the people that he knew uh, in his hometown, that Jesus could barely do any miracles in his hometown because, again, these people were like, we know who this guy is. We know his dad. We've seen Jesus grow up. This guy's familiar. He definitely can't come back here and try and tell us how to live our lives or try and tell us what God says. Come on, you're just little Jesus from down the street. You can't tell us all these things. The crowd would want to force him to be king, and then other times would try and demean him and say, ah, you're not that big of a deal. They had their expectations about who Jesus should be, and if he didn't live within it, 
they had these different responses that Jesus had to navigate. And lastly, the disciples. We see in, um, in the Gospels, there, it's, it says that uh, Jesus had a, a large number of disciples. So it could be like 70, 100 uh, disciples. Oftentimes we think of just that, the 12, that closer, inter, um, uh, that closer group that he had of 12 disciples. But he also had this larger group, people that were like, yeah, I, I like what this guy's saying. I'm going to follow him for a bit and hear what I hear and maybe I'll kind of readjust my life based on, on what he says, right? After Jesus fed the 5,000, and they love him and they're wanting to make him king, a little bit later on at the end of um, John chapter 6, Jesus starts uh, talking about, I'm the bread of life. Okay, people are like, okay, yeah, bread of life, okay. And Jesus uses this analogy or this uh, metaphor. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And now these uh, disciples are like, okay, this guy's getting a little kooky. What, what's he talking about? And we see at the end of John chapter 6 that a handful of the disciples left. They said, ah, this is the point where I get off the ride because I really don't like what this guy's... I love this whole miracle stuff. That was great. I love this whole, maybe he's going to be uh, our Messiah thing. That was great. But now he starts talking about weird stuff. That's not what a healthy Messiah should do. So I'm getting off the ride. I'm going to reject him and, and jump off. But then even the 12, the disciples that were the closest to him, had gone through the ups and the downs with him. What does Jesus say? He says, hey, guys, I know you're going to leave me alone. I know eventually you're going to leave me alone. And what do they do? They leave him alone, right? All these different relationship dynamics, people have their expectations of Jesus. The religious leaders, his family, the crowds, the disciples, they all had expectations about what they wanted Jesus to be, how they wanted him to do this whole Messiah thing. And if he didn't do it the way they wanted to do it, they mischaracterized him, they rejected him, they tried to demand things of him or force him into being something. I guess maybe the first question we can ask ourselves is what stirs up for us when we're around people who want to mischaracterize us or reject us or demand something of us? I think sometimes, and I'm probably overstating it a little bit here, but I think sometimes what can happen is we can vacillate between two extremes a little bit. When people give us their expectations, we can find ourselves trying to be independent or rebel against people's expectations. We push them away and say, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Or sometimes we hear people's expectations and we become dependent. Okay, okay, I'm not sure what, I, I wanted something else, but you know what, okay, whatever you, you want, I'll, I'll kind of give in to that, I'll submit to that. And so I guess the question is, where do we lie sometimes as family, friends, coworkers, people in church, religious leaders, people around us show us that they have expectations of who they want us to be. Do we find ourselves trying to be independent, rebelling? Do we find ourselves trying to be dependent, submitting? Let's take a second just to kind of think through that. Are there things in your life, expectations in your life, right now in this season of life, where you find yourself vacillating or pushing or going closer into letting go of things so that you can be um, accepted or whatever it may be? we're going to find that Jesus did something very, from my opinion, very unique. He navigated this space, not just by being independent and rejecting, 
not just by being dependent and kind of letting go of what God was asking him to do. He lived in this very servant mentality. So let's kind of jump into a few different scenarios. The first one we're going to find is in Matthew 14. Um, this is the feeding of the 5,000. And you, uniquely, this is like one of the few times that all four Gospels talk about an event, an event in Jesus' life. Very few times do you get all four Gospels referencing the same event. But this one, all four of them um, reference. And they all bring something a little bit unique. We'll, we'll read Matthew 14, but we'll bring a couple of the other pieces in as well. But we'll start with Matthew 14, verse 9. And this gives us a little bit of context. It says, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. So, okay, that's a weird, weird uh, opening. Why do we bring in that? So, so some of you guys might know, John the Baptist was, had a special relationship with Jesus. First, he was a distant relative of Jesus. Second, he was the guy who baptized Jesus. We had the baptisms um, the other week. And this powerful moment happens for Jesus, and John the Baptist is there kind of helping that along. And then third, they, their ministries were kind of intertwined. In fact, John's ministry set up Jesus' ministry. So Jesus has a special relationship with John. So John gets beheaded, okay, is killed. The, the um, Herod, the, the king of that particular region, for, there's, it's the whole story here, but anyways, for one reason or another, he decides to kill John, okay? And so now, we'll go on to the, the next verse here. This is verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, heard that John had been killed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place to be by himself. But when that crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town. So we'll push pause real quick here. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus is withdrawing. Why is Jesus withdrawing? One reason is because someone very special to him has been killed. Okay? Now, if we look at the other Gospels, some other stuff comes into play. It gets really uh, meaty, uh, I'll say. Mark chapter 6 and, and, and Luke chapter 9 say, at that same time, Jesus had just sent a bunch of his disciples out to go do ministry. So he's out here healing and preaching, and then he says, you guys do it too. And he says, you, you go out, go out, go out. Everybody go out. You guys go to these different towns. You preach. You heal. So they're going out here like, oh, okay. Uh, oh, whoa, whoa, miracles happen. Uh, okay, I'll teach. Whoa, but people are following the kingdom. And now they're starting to come back after uh, some weeks or some time of teaching and, and healing and things like that. And they're excited. Jesus, you'll never guess what happened. These demons, they left, and oh, we actually healed people, and oh, people are following the kingdom, and people are coming and going, and Jesus is like, okay, 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 okay. Let's withdraw. You guys come with me. This is a natural rhythm that Jesus had in his life. He would do ministry, and then he'd kind of go to a secluded place, withdraw, and pray. So he says to the disciples, whoo, great ministry. Hey, guys, okay, let's withdraw. So his, uh, John, this special relationship, has just died. His disciples are all amped up, and they need to withdraw, okay? We also see that Herod has noticed Jesus. Jesus is on Herod's radar. So maybe, I'm just, I could be wrong here, but maybe Jesus also recognizes, time to go out to a secluded place because things are getting a little hot uh, between me and the government, okay? And then fourth, we see in John as well, the Pharisees have already started making plans to kill him. 
All of these things are happening around Jesus, and Jesus says, necessarily, reasonably, I'm going to withdraw for a little bit. Time to get away for a little bit and go pray, okay? So we can kind of get into the brain space and the heart space of Jesus. He's, he's, he's leaving not just because, oh, time to have a vacation, but because a lot's going on, okay? But now we read the second part of verse 3, or excuse me, um, of, of verse 13. Um, he withdrew, but the crowds heard it, and they followed him on foot. Now, I'm not sure how you would respond. I can guarantee you how I'd respond because I do this with my kids a lot. I'd be very frustrated. No! I'm trying to get away. Why are you guys following me? I wouldn't, it's, I wouldn't come up to the crowd in the boat and be like, look at these guys. They need some love, don't they? I'd be like, my friend's dead, or this, this person I care so much about that. My disciples are dead. All of these things, just leave me alone. But what does Jesus do? Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and great crowd being thousands and thousands of people. He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In some of the other Gospels, what we see is um, healed their sick. He spent the entire day teaching and healing, right? So much so that it gets to be close to nighttime, and his disciples say, hey, Jesus, we got to disperse the crowd. It's getting a little crazy here. And what does Jesus do? He uses it as an opportunity to teach them even more, teach his disciples even more. Again, so a friend's been killed. All this stuff's going on for Jesus, and Jesus pushes pause on that. Why does Jesus push pause on that? One of the other, uh, this um, Matthew and then also Mark both say, use this phrase, compassion. He had compassion. And that word, that Greek word means moved with compassion. He, was moved, he felt something so deeply. And Mark even says that he looked at the crowd and he had compassion because they were lost and they were like, sheep without a shepherd. There was something that Jesus recognized deeply inside these people. It wasn't just a need, like a temporal need, like, okay, yeah, for sure. Like, it's a homeless person here. I'll give you a couple bucks because that's what I'm supposed to do. Check, check, check. He saw the crowd and saw them in a deep way and was moved inside of himself to care for these people. And then we see toward the end of this uh, passage here, verses 22 through 23, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. So he's already done all the teaching. He's already done all the healing. He's already done this whole uh, feeding the 5,000 thing, teaching his disciples, etc. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And remember from that John passage, the crowd is like thinking, hey, we've we got to force this guy into being king. So they're kind of worked up. He dismisses the crowds. And after, verse 23, he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So here are a couple uh, lessons from this particular scenario that I, that I glean from it. Maybe you glean something else, but this is what I glean from it. Nourishing himself, refreshing himself by getting away and praying, that was a value for Jesus. That was a value for Jesus. And at the same time, compassion was Jesus' priority. So he's getting away to nourish himself. He interrupts nourishing himself or refreshing himself because compassion demands care for these people. And then once the job is done or once the, the love is done, the care, the service is done, he gets back to nourishing himself, okay? 
All right, so again, we're talking about all these expectations that people have of us. This is one way in which Jesus kind of navigated that space. Second, we get into Mark chapter 1. There's another scenario. Again, we find Jesus serving because that's just what he does. And this is Mark 132. It says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus doing what Jesus does, healing and teaching into the night. And then what happens in verse 35? And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. There he goes again, finding, trying to find refresh, refreshment through um, engagement with um, God. And here's what happens again. And Simon and those who were there, this is verse 36, with him, searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that, that is why I came. So what do we see? We see Jesus serving again. We see Jesus getting away to nourish himself again. But what else do we see? We see Jesus saying no. Now in this particular situation, he's in Capernaum, which is like 1,500 people. And this particular passage says the entire town came to him. Who knows? Maybe it was the entire town. Maybe it was just shy of a town. But we'll just say 1,000 people were there, okay? Lots of needs that Jesus is meeting, Right? And the disciples come, everyone's looking for you. People from other communities had heard about Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. The ministry's hot, man. Let's get back out there. We are doing stuff. Let's get right back and just, let's, keep, let's keep doing it, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? No. No. Wait, no? You know, I'm a therapist uh, by day, and I see a lot of Christians in therapy. And what's fascinating and understandable but what's fascinating is how often Christians have tension with the no um, uh, dynamic. Understandably, again, oftentimes when I'm sitting with a client, there's a lot of deep psychological tension, I mean, it's, uh, emotional tension around the idea of when people come to me with needs, I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to meet those needs, right? And I'm just fascinated by how Jesus sometimes says, no. Yeah, I know there are more people to heal here, I know there are more demons to cast out here. I know there's more teaching to be done even here, but nah, not here. Let's go on to the next town. That's what God's asking me to do. So some lessons I learned for me from Mark 1. Again, Jesus nourishes himself, and that's a value, and he nourishes himself through relationship with God. But second, just as much as compassion was a priority for Jesus, God's guidance was also a priority for Jesus. He gets away, he prays, people come to him with their expectations. Come on, we got to get back out there, there's more to do. And Jesus says, "Ah, I had a conversation with God, you know what, and uh, this isn't ours to do. This isn't our need. We're going to move on to the next town. And one more, one more, one more. John chapter 2. And this one... You know, I'll be honest with you, this, this passage is, is to me, is just a, such a powerful passage. I don't fully have this one unpacked, and so I'm going to throw this out there uh, at the same time knowing that this could probably be misused by some of us for sure. Um, I'll just throw it out there, and I'm just going to pray that God kind of does what God does 
um, in it. But this one is a powerful passage to me to watch how Jesus interacts, not just with the spoken expectations that people have, but the internal expectations that people have, even with when they're positive expectations or they have positive sense of you. So we'll get into John chapter um, 2. Again, we find Jesus serving that guy. And here we are, uh, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The thing, the silly analogy that comes into my mind, and I'm not sure if this is the same thing for you, but you know the band that comes out that you really like their music? That album is so good, I could listen to that thing on repeat over and over and over again, right? This album comes out, it's like, ah, oh, Pearl Jam or Coldplay or somebody comes, you oh, this thing's so good. And then they come out with the second album, that sophomore release, and they haven't been sitting on the music as long because they're just trying to get that album out. And it's like all of a sudden there are a lot of synth parts or there's like a duet with Rihanna or something. And you're like, wait, what's, what's, wait, what's happening here? That's not, the, that's not the band I knew. Imagine if the band came to you and said, okay, what do you want our second album to be like? Imagine if all their creative energy, they said, that, that doesn't matter. It's what the fan wants. So what do you need? Oh, you want more guitar parts? Okay, we'll do more guitar parts. What, what lyrics do you want us to say? That's kind of what's happening here with Jesus. He recognizes that, oh, my album went platinum. And everyone's like, dude, I love this guy. But he also knows whatever the next thing I bring, a lot of these people aren't going to be on the ride. They're going to say, what? You sold out, man. You're supposed to be this, not that. And so what Jesus says, there's this uh, interesting um, play on words. It says the crowd... Um, uh, trusted him, um, but he didn't entrust himself. That's the same Greek word, pastuo. The crowd pastuo Jesus, but Jesus didn't pastuo himself to them. Putting these two words side by side, what they're doing to him, he doesn't do to them. It's an interesting, interesting passage to me personally. But what do we notice in Matthew 26? Jesus says to the disciples, hey, you guys, (laughs) I'm about to die. And just to let you know, I know you guys are going to leave me. And what does Peter say? Definitely not, Jesus. No way. I will die with you because I'm not going to leave you. What would happen if Jesus had entrusted himself to Peter in that moment? What if Jesus said, okay, I'm going to put all of my trust in Peter and he's going to help me navigate this terrible situation. Well, what did Peter end up doing? Did he die with Jesus? No, he ran away. Jesus knew the heart of you and me is fickle. Not in a bad way. There's something so beautiful about who we are, and God knows that. And at the same time, when things get a little hot, sometimes we run. And what if at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he hadn't learned that, and he had constantly put his trust into all the excitement that people had, all the expectations that people had? Would he have had the same effect? Absolutely not, because he wouldn't have been led by the Father. He'd be led 
by other people's expectations. I wonder, there's this interesting passage in, in Jeremiah, and I wonder if Jesus had this in the back of his mind as he's thinking about um, thinking about the crowd, thinking about disciples, thinking about family, thinking about religious leaders. This is Jeremiah 17, verse 5, but we don't have it up uh, here, but I'll read it out for you. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell on the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt. But, verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. As the crowd gathers around Jesus and says, we love these miracles, and we love seeing you stick it to those religious leaders. Oh, this is so good. Jesus in that same spot, as much as they're praising him, as much as they love him in that moment, doesn't put his roots into their praise of him, doesn't change that the ultimate goal for him of serving rather than being served. And I think the lesson for me in this third passage, although it gets tricky, because Jesus certainly used people's help, we see even as he's approaching the cross, he was very transparent with his disciples and even asked for their help. He said, my heart, basically, my heart is broken. I'm scared. I'm sad speaking that to disciples, not hiding that away because, hey, I'm, I don't need to trust anybody. He also said, can you pl- please just watch and pray with me? Jesus had monetary support. Jesus had support all over the place. So Jesus was, was an individual who trusted others insofar as he was willing to be transparent, but he didn't go so far as to plant himself in the expectations and the love and the praise of other people. He knew you can only go so far. And so the lesson is while serving, Jesus was aware of the temptation and tried to keep himself from the um, dangers of the fickle human heart, if that makes sense. And so I guess, let me have Charlie, maybe do a little keyboard, but I guess maybe let's chew on these questions for a minute. See if God's saying anything to us. I guess the first question um, that I'd love for us to kind of think through as we um, do communion and as we um, uh, engage in the worship uh, music, I guess maybe the first question is, do you prioritize relationship with the Father? And and I'm not saying like in in a shame sense, like, hey, did you do your quiet time? If you didn't, then you must not prioritize relationship. I'm saying from a heart level, do you do you you feel a sense that you know what I, I do prioritize the Father? I'm not I'm not great at it, but I, I prioritize relationship with the Father. Maybe the next question is, does that relationship with God does that nourish you? Does that refresh you? Another question is, would you sense that you're moved? by compassion for others? Do you find that there are expectations all around you and you're constantly checking boxes? 
Or do you feel that there's a sense of compassion you have for other people? Another question is, are you able to say no to the need that God isn't asking you to engage? Are you able to say no? And lastly, are you entrusting yourself to God? Letting your roots grow deep in God? Or have you found yourself letting your roots grow deep into other people's expectations and praise and thoughts about your identity, etc.? So I guess with that said, we'll do some community, but let me pray. God, I just ask that you'd speak to us this morning. What is it that you're wanting to say? Is there something that you're wanting to challenge us on? We need you to strengthen us, God, and encourage us. Where are we getting it right, Father? We'd love to hear from you. And what are the things that need to be adjusted, developed, gotten rid of altogether? Father, we just ask that you would be speaking to us this morning. We come here to worship you to hear from you. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you.